Welcome to the Life Over Coffee podcast, conversations for transformation. The suffering God permitted in my life after becoming a Christian was surprising and devastating. Boom. Some of you can relate to that because you did not anticipate suffering at the degree in which you have experienced it after you became a Christian, and I was just like that. I had poor theology. I did not understand that suffering was a means of grace that God brings into our lives to help us to mature into Christ's likeness. Before God saved me, I thought that becoming a Christian insulated me from disappointment. Honestly, that was a compelling reason for me to trust Christ anyway. I was tired of my life. I was frustrated with my life. I carried so much shame and guilt and fear and insecurity. And somebody told me about Christ and hope and peace and shalom and heaven to boot and that he would take all of my sins and give me an alien righteousness. It sounded too good to be true. Of course, in my ignorance, I thought that this was going to be a perfect life the way that I determined what a perfect life would be. I anticipated that my new religion would be an enjoyable experience because finally I would arrive at that place to where suffering would not be part of it. Listen to my poor theology. I was just ignorant. I was innocent. I was unwitting. I was ignorant, though. I did not understand that there's an aspect of becoming a Christian that is deep, profound, complex, life-changing, and it unearths all of that former manner of life that we bring into our Christian experience. I did not realize that Christianity and suffering are basically synonyms never discerning how suffering is the primary context where God produces the most abundant fruit in our lives, except a grain of wheat fall into the ground and dies, it abides alone. But if it dies, it brings forth much fruit. And so God, in his kindness and mercy to us, regenerates us freely, for by grace we have been saved. But then he brings us into this Christian experience, and then he begins a sanctification process. And many times, oftentimes, that sanctification process includes suffering. It's counterintuitive to the natural man's thinking, but suffering is the perfect place to find God's power working through our weaknesses. Hello, everyone. This is Rick Thomas. Thank you so much for joining me for Life Over Coffee. I want to share with you four things that you must know about your suffering. Either you're heading into suffering or you're in it right now or you're just coming out of it and you're going to circle back around and go into it again, welcome to the Christian life. I know better now, but what I was just explaining to you was when God regenerated me in 1984. I did not know John 3:16 when God saved me. All I knew was that I needed Christ, I needed forgiveness, and I uploaded all this other data to what Christianity was going to be for me. And of course, it was not like that at all. I don't want to discourage you, but I do want to be a realist. Yes, we receive an alien righteousness. 
We are born again, not based on any of our works. It most definitely is a free gift from God. But when we step into our Christian experience, there is a process of reshaping, remolding, gutting us. It's like going into a a home and, and just gutting it and rebuilding it from the ground up. And that's the sanctification process. And I had to learn that. And so I want to share a few thoughts about suffering. Again, I've titled this four things that you need to know about your suffering. And as I get to the end, I will share those four things with you. But let me begin by sharing a quote from C.S. Lewis. He said this, we were promised sufferings. They were part of the program. We were even told, blessed are they that mourn. And I accept it. I got nothing that I hadn't bargained for. Of course, it is different when the thing happens to oneself, not to others, and in reality, not in imagination. And that is so true. When someone is going through a difficulty, we can share with them what God's Word says. We can give them a form of encouragement, almost in a detached way, because it's not happening to us. But when suffering comes and rests on our doorstep, then as C.S. Lewis is saying, it is a different experience altogether. And of course, you have been there. That's why when you go through suffering, there are some things that you need to know. As I was going through my early days of my Christian experience, I was thinking about my traumatic childhood and how unbearable it was at times. You see, I wasn't, I wasn't, unfamiliar with suffering. I had a horrific childhood. In fact, it was the suffering of my childhood and then all the collateral damage and the awful decisions that I made through the early years of my life that really motivated me to want to become a Christian because I did not want to suffer any longer. It made sense to me that I suffered as a child because I lived in a family that did not love God We did not love others more than ourselves. We loved ourselves most of all. We rejected God and Christianity. And bad things happened to bad people. And so we were bad people. And so I expected bad things to happen to me. And they did. And my childhood was traumatic. But it was the trauma after regeneration that was hard to swallow. If bad things happen to bad people, which is true... Bad things should not happen to people trying to do good. And that's where I was in the early hours of my salvation. I am now trying to do good. And so my expectation is I will get what I deserve and what I don't deserve is more suffering in my life because I am trying to follow God. Now, you have heard people talk about this. The the statement is, I have tried Christianity and it did not work. Do you hear what they were saying? Well, that was basically how I thought as an early, young, novice, infant Christian. And so I don't condemn people when they say that I tried Christianity and it did not work and they reject God. Now, they should not reject God. They need a better understanding that bad things happen to bad people. Bad things happen to people who are trying to do good. And so if you believe that bad things shouldn't happen to you because you have now 
trusted Christ, then I appeal to you to rethink that you don't have that twisted theological misthinking that I had that had it had weaved itself into the fabric of my view of God and it determined the amount of disappointment that I experienced when the disappointing things came my way. And when the disappointing things came my way, because my theological thinking was misthinking, it nearly killed me. And on the heels of that, As I went through the most horrific suffering in my life, I began to study the book of Job. The patriarch of suffering in the Bible is Job. And he wasn't a perfect man, but Job did not believe that he deserved the devastation that came to his family. He sat in the rubble of this implosion as he lost so much in Job chapter 1. And his mind was just racing. He couldn't believe that this suffering had come to him. He didn't do anything to deserve what happened to him. And to make matters worse, there was this deafening silence of God. Imagine that. To be in pain is hard enough. But when God won't speak into the tragedy, the silence pounds against your soul. Have you ever been in that place where the trouble came and God was silent, strapped in a straight jacket and dropped into an ocean of suffering? It's one of the most hopeless experiences in life, and some of you know exactly what I am saying. Well, our brother Job was in that place. Listen to how he talked about it later on in his journal, The Silence of God, as we move to the middle of his book in chapter 23, Job said this, Behold, I go forward, but God is not there, and backward, but I do not perceive him. On the left hand, when he is working, I do not behold him. He turns to the right, but I do not see him. Can you hear the silence of God as Job is sitting in all this trouble? You have your trouble and then the pounding silence of God against your soul. And here was a man who lived according to the rules. He was doing good. Now, of course, there is a pinch of legalism that was taking up harbor, uh, taking shape in Job's soul. We know that he was a little bit of a legalist. But with that aside, there was no question that Job loved God. He was a man of integrity. He was trying to do the right thing. In fact, I do think that if Job had died in the first chapter of his book, we would all testify that he was a good man who loved the Lord. But Job did not die, and his story continued to unravel. In fact, you can look at the early hours of his story, and you could sum it up in in a, a six-part dissension, six descending steps of Job's story as it began. It would look something like this, and maybe you can fit yourself into, maybe this will resonate with you. Number one, I was trying to do good. Number two, trouble came into my life. What's up with this? Number three, I, I didn't deserve this trouble. It just happened. I was sitting at the intersection and a car T-boned me. 
I was trying to do good. Trouble came into my life. I did not deserve the trouble. I began to fall apart, number four. Number five, none of this made any sense at all. And then finally, number six, the six steps of dissension. No one was there to comfort me, not even the Lord. And so there we are, the silence of God, and we have just insurmountable trouble into our lives. Now, at that point, I have a question, and I think this is the most important question that you can ask when trouble comes into your life. And I want to share this question with you by giving you a quote from A.W. Tozer. Tozer said this, What comes into our minds when we think about God is the most important thing about us. What comes into our minds when we think about God is the most important thing about us. Now, I want to contextualize Tozer's quote in Job chapter 1, or even more pointedly, in your suffering. The most important thing that will happen at the beginning of your suffering is how you think about God. Your view of God will determine how you walk through your suffering. How you think about God is the most important thing as you begin the early stages of your suffering. Have you ever been in a place where your suffering did not make sense and the Lord was not forthcoming with a reason for why you're going through what you're going through? If you have, then you likely have had questions formulating in your head about God. Like, what kind of God runs the world this way? What sort of God governs our lives with seeming cruelty? How should we think about God when a person experiences undeserved suffering? Can you see how, it is, how important it is? to think about how you think about God, because that is the key that will determine not just the entrance, but it will, in, it, it will determine the journey that you take as you move down the path of suffering. You see, if we are unsure about God and his intent in our suffering, then we are going to mishandle and misunderstand what is happening to us. Suffering became a means of grace to help Job rethink his thoughts about God. Because we know as we read Job chapter 1, that even though he loved God with all his heart, soul, mind, and strength, and loved others more than himself, Job had an improper view about God. How he thought about God was not right. In fact, you read that in verse number 5. Let me share that with you. The text says, Job 1, verse 5, And when the days of the feast had run their course, Job would send and, and consecrate his family. And he would rise early in the morning and offer burnt offerings according to the number of them all. For Job said, here it is, It may be that my children have sinned and cursed God in their hearts. Thus Job did the text says, continually offered sacrifices to God on behalf of his children. This snapshot of Job's life is an insightful verse that could be a linchpin 
that holds one of the book's central mysteries. When Job considered the possibility of his children sinning against God, he decided to offer sacrifices on their behalf. And the text says he did this continually. Job's actions reflect more on his thoughts about God than his feelings about his children. This verse reveals Job's pinch of legalism, and that legalistic perspective was most definitely the accusation that Satan made about Job. You remember what Satan told God? Job might not have had enough self-awareness to know what was going on in his heart, that he could not discern his heart, possibly. But Satan knew, he discerned, he perceived, and God also knew Job's heart. Listen to how Satan was talking to God in chapter 1, verses 9 and 10. The text says this, Does Job fear God for no reason? Have you not put a hedge around him and his house and all that he has on every side? You have blessed the work of his hands and his possessions have increased in the land. Brother Job was a man of spotless character and deep affection for his Lord. I would not, I would not want to cast any shade on that. But the real question is whether or not Job was perfect, and we already know the answer. Job was, Job was like me in the sense that Job's a flawed man. He's an endemic man. Job has a former manner of life that he has brought into his Christian experience, and we see that in verse 5 where he's offering sacrifices to appease God. With all of his faith and all of God's grace, he still wanted to maintain partial control over his life. He wanted to do his part to ensure that all was well between him and God. Now, maybe Job's theology was colored by his culture. Again, he had a former manner of life. He lived in a culture that rejected God, so maybe that was what was going on. The land of Uz was not in Israel. He lived in a predominantly pagan land that was religious in appeasing their gods. Every other deity in his culture believed that they had to appease God. And so part of the mentality of a legalist like Job is that the other shoe is going to drop. That is part of the legalist worldview. They strive to be holy because they have an uncomfortable understanding of how they relate to God. Ironically, we know that the prosperity gospel folks have this same broken theological formula that sounds like this, if I do well, the Lord will bless me. And again, this is what Satan was accusing, and it seemed like Job thought that way to some degree. And so what about you? Now, suppose you say, well, I'm not a legalist, and, and I know that the prosperity gospel is heresy. Well, good for you. I agree. But wouldn't you agree that there could be traces of your theology that have a I must work to please God mentality to it? 
I'm not trying to gaslight you. I just want you to think, is that possible? You're an Adamic person. You have a former manner of life, and it is in us to want to please God. Have you completely removed that from your soul? Job had not. I counsel people like this all the time, and they won't say it aloud. But as you talk to them and draw out what they are thinking— you will hear the, the traces of, if I do well, the Lord will bless me. If I do not, the Lord will not bless me. Now, they won't say it that explicitly. Let me share with you a few ways of how a person can think this way. Now, typically, after they find themselves in the crucible of suffering, when they have been doing good, when they have tried Christianity, when they are trying to do the right thing, and things fall apart like Job, because it's in the crucible of suffering when the heat bears down on our lives in such an intense way, our true theology will bubble up and come out of our mouths. And some of them will go so far to say, I tried Christianity and it did not work for me. They were covert legalists who were bartering with God and their suffering unearthed their ill intent and they quit God because he did not give them what they expected from following him. Here are some of the comments that I have heard in counseling. Just let me share a handful, maybe five, uh, with you. Quote, I missed my daily Bible study and something terrible happened to me. I've heard that before. And then they would go on and say, there is a direct correlation between my lack of devotion and the trouble in my life. I should have done better. I should not have missed my Bible study. Here's another one. My child is not walking with the Lord, and I was not a good parent. If I had been a better parent, the Lord would have motivated my child to love and follow him. A lot of parents get stuck in this legalistic trap, thinking that, that the regeneration or the sanctification of their child is mostly primarily upon them. Here's another one. I am stuck in a habitual sin. I live under this ominous cloud of expecting God to do something terrible to my family or me. I know the Lord is going to get me for this. Here's a fourth one. We fornicated while dating, and now we have a miserable marriage. The Lord is punishing us. We're receiving the fruit of our actions. You reap what you sow, you know. And then finally, here's a fifth one. If I go to church, my children will be okay. There's a good chance the Lord will bless us with good kids if we keep them in church. All five of these statements are legalistically laced, and these are things that I have heard in counseling. And again, it typically is always as they are sitting in the crucible of suffering and the heat bearing down on them draws out their theology and they are similar to me. There's a little bit of legalism in all of us, and there was a little bit of legalism in Job. I suspect that we all have doubted God's good intentions for us to some degree. Now, you may not be as righteous as Job. I'm not. But there is a part of you that does question God's love for you. I mean, has that never happened to you? I think for most of us, we would say, yeah, I have questioned God's love for me. I have. 
And if you have not, perhaps the heat in your crucible is not as hot as it needs to be to draw out those yet-to-be-revealed dark motivations for following Jesus. There is a little bit of legalism in all of us because it is part of our fallenness. Now, some people argue that, well, you do reap what you sow. I mean, Galatians 6, 7 is pretty clear. And of course, that is correct. You do reap what you sow. But I mean, if you sow to the flesh, the chances of reaping corruption are high. But may I caution you to put guardrails on that kind of thinking? You just can't let that thinking just go on ad infinitum because the truth is you do not reap all that you sow. And neither do I. I mean, think with me for just a moment. Think about a lifelong habitual sin pattern that may be in your life. Maybe it's anger like frustration or impatience. Uh, Maybe it's like worry or fear. Or maybe it's some form of lust that has set up camp in your heart. You don't want to do it again. It grieves you to find yourself in that rut again. You plead with God to give you victory again. You want that forever freedom, but it is elusive again. And still, God is a merciful God who does not deal with us according to all his law. The if I do this and God will do that reduces your theology down to a formula as for how you think about God, then you're in a problematic place. Yeah, we do reap what we sow, but we do not reap all that we sow. And so we can't place God in a formula. This formulaic view of God will lead us into a deep hole of exhausting work as we try to please him continually, as Job was doing, and it could lead us to paranoid fear. One of the most important things that we can do when personal suffering comes into our lives is to re-examine how we think about God. How can we ever believe right about God if we do not think about what we think about God when our life goes wrong? This is so important. When the heat comes bearing down and you are ushered into the crucible of suffering, we need to stop, we need to ponder, we need to reflect how we think about God. What is happening? Who is God? What is he doing? I know that there is mystery here, that we cannot know the full mysteries of what God is doing. And so let me ask, how do you think about God when your life is not going as you hoped? Do you casually dismiss this question? When you're sitting in the crucible of suffering, the most significant thing you can ponder is your view of God because how you think about him will set the course that brings you out of your trouble, or it may case harden you into an unending dark night of the soul because you grow bitter, because your view of God is improper. I tried Christianity and it did not work. God, why did you do this to me? And we begin to accuse God, and then our souls become case hardened because we blame God for things that have gone wrong. For example, how do you think about God? Let me give you a few illustrations. Maybe some of these illustrations are yours, and if not, perhaps you could spend some time reflecting on whatever your suffering is, but here are a few suffering 
illustrations, and I want you to see why it is so important to think properly about God, because if we don't, it will lead us into a deep ditch of despair. For example, illustration number one, when your spouse does not change, what do you think about God? What do you expect God to do? Do you accuse him if he does not respond the way that you wish? Illustration two, when your child remains in sin, that is your crucible of suffering, what do you think about God? Are you impatient with God or do you over-examine how you reared your child thinking, if only I had done fill in the blank and then, well, this would have happened? Do you hear that poor theology that we are weaving into our trouble? Illustration number three, how do you think about God when your dream does not come true? Do you believe you miss God's will or are you resting, knowing that we make our plans, but God orders our steps? And so God is superintending and he is managing you, even though your dream is not coming true now. One more illustration. How do you think about God when your fill in the blank? does not happen. Now, perhaps it would help to think about your last significant disappointment, focusing specifically on how you thought about God while the problem was occurring. And that brings us back to Job, the end of the chapter. At the end of chapter one, we hear how Job thought about God. And it is a profound verse or there's a couple of verses here, and I want to share them with you. This is how he thought about God in this moment. Now, we know what happened later on, but let's, we'll stay in this moment. This is what Job said, Naked I came from my mother's womb, and naked shall I return. The Lord gave, and the Lord has taken away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. In all this, Job did not sin or charge God with wrong. Now, Job indeed began to come unhooked from this stellar response about God, but it does not change his stellar response about God in chapter 1. If we cannot come to where Job was at the end of chapter 1, we will complicate our misery. In all this, he did not sin nor charge God foolishly. The persistence of his suffering unmoored him from his pitch-perfect response. And we can get to that later. But now I want you just to sit where he was sitting in chapter 1. Feel his pain. Reflect on his suffering theology. And listen to what he thought about God. But be careful I don't want you to beat yourself up because maybe you're not as spiritual as Job was. I wasn't. I was so unlike Job that it took me two years to get out of chapter one. I spent four years altogether studying the book of Job when I was going through my dark night of the soul, which lasted almost a decade. But four of those years, I just studied the book of Job because, again, Job and suffering are, are almost synonymous. But when I read chapter 1 and, and, and all the devastation that came into his life, and when I got to the end of the chapter, those last three verses, 
where he rent his mantle, he shaved his head, he fell down on the ground and worshiped. I didn't read that part, but that's the preface to what I read to you. There could be a tendency or a temptation to compare yourself to Job and say, man, I am not like that. And you can just beat yourself up. Well, I did that, and so I'm asking you to guard your heart so that you don't beat yourself up. But I refused to go any farther until I could muster up something that was closer to Job's response than the bitter anguish falling from my lips the day that my trouble came. I pleaded with the Lord to help me to see what I could not see about myself. I wanted what Job had, and my heart was nowhere near worshiping God through my agony. My focus was more on what God gave and what God took away from me than his blessed name. If he gave me what I wanted, blessed be his holy name. If he did not, I groveled on the floor like a petty, prostrated child. To reach the height of Job's mature response seemed impossible. And so if you're going through something awful, I wish I had an answer for what is happening to you, but, but I don't. There is an element of mystery to all of our suffering that is a great level higher than what mortals can understand. But still yet, there are four things that I know that will serve you when it comes to personal pain and how you engage and apply these four things that I'm going to share with you will proportionally impact how you persevere through suffering. And so I want you to listen carefully and reflectively. Ask the Lord to help you to see into the mystery of what is happening to you. He has a word for you, but you will have to slow down long enough to listen Perhaps journaling or speaking with a friend about what you are about to hear will help you as you move forward in your crucible. And so as I titled this, Four Things That You Must Know About Your Suffering, here we are at the end, and I want to share those four things with you. Number one, you must not connect your suffering to a formula. The I do good and God will good will happen to me And if I do bad, then bad things will happen to me. That's awful theology. And so will you be honest with yourself? Take as much time as you need to think through our collective Adamic tendency to barter with God. Job used part of his sacrificial ritual to sway the omnipotent hand of God as though he could, hoping that God would protect his family. Number one, we cannot connect our suffering to a formula uh, because then our legalism will just be out in the open and, and we need to deal with that. Number two, perhaps you need to revisit your definition of the word good. The Lord loves you beyond your ability to entirely understand his love for you. His intentions towards you are perfect, loving, just, and unassailable. Surgery is ultimately good, and sometimes our embedded problems are so entangled in our psyches that a suffering sending God is the only way to save ourselves from ourselves. So point number two, maybe we need to rethink how we think about the word good. Number three, we say that God can do what he pleases, when he pleases, how he pleases, to whom he pleases, and the hearty amens ring to the rafters. And then as C.S. Lewis was saying, then God turns his sights on us. It is in reality, not in our imagination. It is happening to oneself, not to others. One of the most critical things that must happen during times of suffering is our theology 
It must become practical. Submitting our will to His will, that is the trailhead that leads to maturity. God is a radical God, and He might do radical things, point number three. And then finally, four things that you need to know about your suffering. This final point is the litmus test. Everything should move us into a more profound worship experience with the Lord. I would encourage you to revisit the last verses in chapter 1. I read the last two, but not the last three. And as I mentioned, the last three, it tells us that Job fell on the ground and worshiped God. And his suffering could not rob him of that experience. If you're not progressing forward, or if you're not stumbling forward... As you move down the path of suffering, there's something amiss, and there are four things that you must know about your suffering. I've just shared those with you. And you can read this entire article, listen to the podcast, or watch the video if you want to revisit this, and I would encourage you to do so. Thank you so much, and God bless. Thanks for joining us. Learn more and get access to other resources at lifeovercoffee.com.